I told you, I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd, and there's nothing I can do about it. Okay, campers, rise and shine. It's now playing's review of Groundhog Day. This is pitiful. A thousand people freezing their butts off waiting to worship a rat. What a hype. Hosted by Brock. Did he actually call himself the talent? Jacob. He's the fastest Jack in Jefferson County. And Arnie. He's too humble to know he's perfect. This podcast will have detailed plot spoilers and mild language. This is one time where television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel predicting the weather. Listener discretion is advised. Are you guys ready? We better get going if we're going to stay ahead of the weather. Today we're talking about Groundhog Day, starring Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, Chris Elliott, Stephen Tobolowski, and directed by Harold Ramis. Now don't say you don't remember me, because I sure as heck fire remember you. This is Brock. Brock? Brock from now playing? It's me, Arnie! Are you going to hit me? (laughs) And this is the co-host who's from the state of warm weather, gang wars, and some very overpriced real estate, Jacob. That's very much true in 2019 as it was in 1993 when this film came out. Still very expensive to live in California. Typically warm weather, though it is raining right now as we're recording. Gang wars have gotten better. Not as many of them going on. Yeah, that was a Bill Murray ad lib that very much fit the 1993 time. That was around the time Ice-T came out with Cop Killa. And... Yeah. I'm sure Murray was tuned into that. What was going on in Gangster Rap in 93? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was tuned into entertainment. He's Bill Murray. And besides, I mean, he has all those rap contacts from the Ghostbusters 2 soundtrack. <laughs> Well, we're here to discuss what is considered by many a comedy classic Groundhog Day. Arnie, this is quite a surprise because I got to tell you, I went through all of the Now Playings and I think this is like the third comedy view for Now Playing. Well, Now Playing doesn't do a lot of comedies. By and large, we've shied away from the genre, but I would also tend to ask, what is a comedy? I was shocked to see that Deadpool was marked as a comedy in my iTunes. You know, they categorized the movies for me and I was looking for a comedy to watch and there was Deadpool. I'm like, I thought that was action. And we reviewed the Back to the Future films when I was a kid. I thought those were really funny. I thought they were comedies. Yeah. But they're also sci-fi. And here we're reviewing what has been labeled one of the top 20 fantasy films of all time. Yeah, I was going to bring up magical realism. Usually that's something I associate with Spanish culture, but I do think this borrows from that. And it's like a rom-com, a fantasy rom-com. I don't know if we've done that before. (laughs) The genre is very small. We're going to do like water for chocolate after this, carrying on the magical realism rom-coms. Oh, maybe sliding doors. Isn't there the one where Sarah Michelle Gellar's a cook? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that one. (laughs) My Sarah Michelle Gellar knowledge is not what it used to be. Simply irresistible. Clearly it was. The argument, though, for others' movies being comedies, I would think this one, of all the ones we've talked about, you could say it's a fantasy film if all you want to, but it really is. I mean, 
this is a comedy it's top to bottom. It was made to be a comedy. It's a very funny movie. It's quoted a lot still to this day. I would really argue that this is more of a comedy film than a fantasy movie, but of course it's a comedy with fantasy elements. It's a Ray Miss Murray joint. It's got to be a comedy, right? And in which case we did those with Ghostbusters. True. Another comedy. But this is actually the lead in to our Happy Death Day retrospective, which has definitely some Final Destination-ish elements. The three of us were the Final Destination crew, so we're doing Happy Death Day. How can we discuss Happy Death Day without bringing up infinitely Groundhog Day? This would have been half the talk of Happy Death Day, which will come out next week. So here's the prequel to it. Here's all the exposition. And if we had an extra week, we'd be reviewing Before I Fall. Yeah, I was looking this up. This concept has been adapted towards tons of other movies besides just Happy Death Day. It has? Yeah, there's a bunch of movies that the idea of repeating the thing over and over again has come to pass. There's a movie called 12 Dates of Christmas. Sounds like a Hallmark film. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'd say the biggest one would probably be Edge of Tomorrow, which they then renamed for video Live, Die, Repeat. Have you guys seen that one? Yeah, I have seen that one. And you're right. I forgot about that. I think a lot of people forgot about it because Edge of Tomorrow is a horrible name and Live, Die, Repeat is so much better. So yes, of course they changed it. Yeah, that one does do this conceit. It does come up with the reason, but I feel like this is the classic. This is the one. If you're going to watch something about the same day over and over, if you're going to have that kind of day, you're going to want to watch Groundhog Day. And this movie's title has become synonymous with the aspect of reliving the same thing over and over again. Yeah, it's just called Groundhog Day. Now, I know I'd seen time loop stories before 1993. There was a Star Trek The Next Generation episode where somebody kept reliving the same events. And I know Twilight Zone episodes have done it. Apparently, this story of Groundhog Day can be traced back to a short story by Malcolm Jameson, doubled and redoubled from 1941, where it tells of a person cursed to repeat a perfect day over and over again. And that story was part of the inspiration for Groundhog Day. Yeah, I'm sure Star Trek, Twilight Zone, some old novel, there's all that, but it's come to be known as Groundhog Day for a reason. It's because of this film. Like, I don't know how everyone's going to come on it, but I, I'll say for me, I saw this in theaters when it came out. It's one of those films where I really didn't need to watch it for this review. I did, so I could have notes and refresh myself, but I just know it so well because it is the classic same day over and over and over movie. I did not see this in theaters. I was a college freshman. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a dime. It was 1993, so you didn't have a torrent site. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I saw this movie come out. I was a Bill Murray fan from the 80s. I had seen just about every Bill Murray film, many of them in theaters. But when this came out, I made it a point to see it as soon as it came out on video. And you're right, Jacob. I actually had a really busy week this week. And Marjorie's like, do you even need to watch Groundhog Day? Don't you know it? And I'm like, eh, you know, let me watch it with the now playing goggles on. I found myself taking notes literally one scene in advance. <laughs> I was like, well, in the next scene, it's this. Yes, I was the same way. <laughs> so I knew this movie, not line for line like Empire Strikes Back, but I knew every beat of this movie before it happened. That's how often I've seen it. I saw it in theaters as well. I also watched it a lot of times when it came available on video. And I, too, did not have to watch it. My wife and I had a very similar conversation. But at the end of it, she's like, you know what? I haven't seen it in a long time. 
how about we watch it together? And it turns out that I haven't watched the movie in about 20 years, but I still know it very, very well. It's one of these movies that you see three or four times and you can quote it. You don't really have to watch it, but I too decided that for the show to refresh myself. But I was really think, going in there thinking, I'm not going to find these jokes funny. I know them too well. I was surprised that some of these laugh lines that we still quote to this day still play very well in a movie that's 25 years old and all of us have seen over and over and over again. Groundhog Day, I would say, is a comedy classic for us, for people who saw it when it came out or close to when it came out and have lived with it for all these years. I don't know if people who watch it for the first time nowadays would find it as funny or be able to associate with the humor. It's from 1992. There was no cell phones. There's very little computers, no computers at all in this movie that I saw outside of the weather service in the beginning of the movie, right? So it's a very dated movie in that sense. But to me, it felt comfortable because I was used to it, you know? So I honestly think if you show it to a young kid today, they may not like it as much as we do. Are you saying millennials only like movies with computers and cell phones and maybe avocado toast? <laughs> <laughs> Whether eating their kale, I agree, yes. What I'm saying is that a lot of, to us, it is definitely a comedy classic. And I think to people who watch a lot of movies for all these years, I think if you throw a bucket out there of the best comedies of the last 25 years, you cannot overlook Groundhog Day. Oh, no, I agree with you, Brock. And yeah, if I was making a list of classic films, this would be one on there. Just here's films that are classic, that made their mark in cinema. Yes, Groundhog Day is on that list. My relationship to this movie reminds me of my relationship to the movie A Christmas Story and that it came out and I saw it and I really liked it, but I didn't know anyone who saw it. And Groundhog Day made decent money. It cost 15 million to make. It made 70 million, which was a really decent haul for the early 90s when there were literally 10 films that had made 200 million or more back then, if you can fathom that as huge box office 200 million was the high bar but this feels like a sleeper hit kind of like a christmas story in that for years nobody talked about it but i remember having a real good reaction to it and then all of a sudden they start airing it 24 hours a day on television i was gonna ask someone's got to do that on groundhog day right tbs some channel out there yes they do it every year just like a christmas story 24 hours on christmas there is a 24 hours of the groundhog day movie on some network i couldn't tell you which one but that's part of the reason i knew this movie so well is i've seen part of it every single year for as long as I can remember. And people came out of the woodwork. I'd say when this movie hit about 15 years old, there was a special edition DVD. Harold Ramis did a commentary. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh my God, this movie's great. But it really feels like it was a sleeper hit at the time. It got good reviews, but I don't remember it being the top of anyone's top 10 movies in 93 list. Roger Ebert, put this in his great movies book. There were huge fans of this movie from the get-go. Yeah, maybe you were in college, so people were preoccupied with other things. I do remember people talking about this, and wow, have you seen this? It's such an inventive idea, and it's so funny, and so a little bit different experience. I remember people talking about this film when it did come out, and I know people who are still big fans of it to this day. Conversely, around the same time, it came out in 1989, a movie called Major League came out. Right in our wheelhouse, the three of us were the right age for that movie. I know Artie's going to consider it a classic. It is! I've seen it more times than I can count. I love this movie. I watched it so many times I could quote it. I took about 25 years off of watching that movie, and now I watch it annually at the beginning of baseball season again and enjoy it just as much as I did when I was 15 or 16 years old when I was watching it. And if someone asked me, if there are classic comedies of the 80s, what would you consider? And I love Major League. 
I would not put Major League in the top 20 classic comedies of the 1980s. There are so many more iconic movies. So if you want to put it in that kind of comparison, Groundhog Day is a different level of comedy that, for whatever reason, I consider a classic. And I think what you hit on was because it's become part of the vernacular, because it has become something that people talk about still because of the repetition aspect. Whereas Major League, it's a funny-ass movie, but it's not memorable in that kind of way. Yeah, I mean, that's a comedy about baseball. This has got like a hook. Like when you think about Groundhog Day, oh, it's got this crazy idea of repeating the same day over and over and over. And But it's also funny because it's Bill Murray and it's got this sweet romance in it and all that. So yeah, for me to be a classic, you just got to have that little thing that just kind of pushes it over just sets it a little bit apart. Agreed. I think classics are what hit the cultural zeitgeist. And I feel that there's no doubt this one did. If we are having 24 hours of it aired on television constantly. And you mentioned it being a Bill Murray comedy, Jacob, but this is also the sixth Harold Ramis, Bill Murray team up. And way back when we did the Ghostbusters retrospective series, I did a deep dive into Harold Ramis. I knew him from Ghostbusters pretty much, but I didn't really know much about his behind the camera work, but that he was the writer for Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes, both Ghostbusters films and Groundhog Day. And he directed Caddyshack and Groundhog Day. And so he was considered one of the great comedy minds coming out of SCTV. I mean, all of those movies I listed that he wrote, with the possible exception of Ghostbusters 2, are held <laughs> in pretty high acclaim. Ooh. Well, Meatballs isn't the same thing. Go back and watch Meatballs. That is not good. I rewatched it within the last year, and it is, ooh, rough. When we did the Ghostbusters retrospective, I watched Meatballs for the first time and gave it a pretty strong red arrow, but people do love it. <laughs> yes. I didn't like Porky's either, you know? I'm not a huge fan of Caddyshack. Yeah, I'm also not a fan of Caddyshack, so controversial. What? Yes, I know. And you know what, people? Stripes is only funny for the first half. That second half is weird when they actually go on a mission <laughs> and ruins the whole film. It's like Spies Like Us, the prototype. Right. And for the record, Caddyshack definitely has some funny scenes, but as a movie as a whole, it is not a very well-constructed movie. There, there was no script for that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good movie. It's, there's some funny parts. Both Meatballs and Caddyshack, and to a lesser degree Stripes, are skits. They're just people doing funny things in the same situation again and again. But Caddyshack with Chevy Chase, Bill Murray and the Gopher is what pulled me into Caddyshack as a kid, and I still love it to this day. Understandable. So was Murray the first choice since Ramus was behind the camera? I mean, this kind of feels like Scrooged, which Murray also starred in a few years earlier. It's the same kind of arc of a grumpy gentleman that has to learn how to be kind-hearted. He was not the first choice, and... I don't think I'm spoiling anything when I say this was the last time Ramus and Murray worked together, and it was the last time they spoke until Ramus was on his deathbed, like, the day before he died. But part of that is perhaps chalked up to that after all their work together, Ramus was looking at Tom Hanks to lead this film. I mean, after Big, Tom Hanks would definitely make sense. Now, in 93, Tom Hanks was going in a bit of a different direction. He'd be coming out with Philadelphia and then next year, Forrest Gump. But Ramus had really seen this as a Tom Hanks role. Really? Because I can't see anyone but Bill Murray. I can't see Hanks being that jerk that you don't like and having to have the arc that 
Phil will have to have. Exactly right. I think I read somewhere that they ultimately decided for that very reason they couldn't go with Tom Hanks. Don't forget, Arnie, though, he did do Sleepless in Seattle the same year he did Philadelphia, which is the same year this came out. So he would have been right for a romantic comedy such as this one. But when Tom Hanks has tried to play a little bit mean, like in Punchline, for example, it didn't really go a lot with audiences because they always like Tom Hanks to be as nice as possible. He could have a bit of an edge to him, but not the edge or the darkness that you need for this movie. Bill Murray, I can't believe he would not be everyone's only choice for this role. Yeah, what I've read, there's a lot of places that said Ramis came to that conclusion. I find it a little bit more believable. What I read is that Tom Hanks turned Ramis down and said, nobody's (laughs) going to buy me as dark. I've seen as the nice guy. So then they did bring in Bill Murray, who was going through a rough time in his life. He had taken a year off from film. You know, we hadn't seen him since What About Bob in 91. He took a year off, went to live in France. His marriage was falling apart. But he'd had a string of hits. Scrooge, which you mentioned, Jacob. Ghostbusters 2, say what you will about it. A lot of people have. It made money. Quick change. A hit? Was not a hit. Is in our underrated movies book. Okay, so not a hit. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be clear, not a hit. And then what about Bob and this? I mean, he'd had a string of solid films, but perhaps wasn't the same Bill Murray we'd known in the 80s when he was playing the dental patients in Little Shop of Horrors, also in our book. Yeah, he's always seemed like a complicated figure where he'll do comedies, but he always wanted to do dramas, you know, do the Ghostbusters, but then I get to do the Razor's Edge where I'm going to play a Buddhist monk after that one. And and yeah, he's always wanted to go more dramatic. And that is the interesting about him. There always is that tension where I'm the funny guy, but there's a darkness to him that you could feel. And it'd be a couple of years from now, he'd do Rushmore and the whole thing would change for him. That was five years later. And that's when you really start seeing his film career change. He'd go and do things like Garfield. No. (laughs) Charlie's Angels. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Also in our book, (laughs) Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, you're just talking about all the West (laughs) Ham. And of course, I think the one that most people know him for, that he notoriously walked away from the Oscars after he didn't win for Lost in Translation. But he wanted things to be more serious. I think this happens with every comedian. They reach a point where they're tired of being the funny guy and they want to be taken seriously. They want to do more drama. Murray wanted this to be far more dramatic. And Ramis wanted this to be far more comedic. And what's really interesting to me already in this conversation is how you guys keep talking about this as this funny comedy, funny comedy. I watched it originally and now it has its humorous moments, but... I don't laugh out loud like I do still to this day with Christmas Vacation or something. This, to me, is an insightful and emotional and spiritual film more than it is a funny film. I agree, but the surface is the comedy. Like, you go, yeah, sit down, this is a funny movie. And then, yes, there's all this deeper stuff to it. That's what we'll talk about it, but I think that's one of the great things about it is that, yeah, it sucks you in. But I would still say, yes, this is a comedy. There are deeper things to it. Comedies can go to a deeper level. And at some point, it stops being a laugh-out-loud comedy and a comedy that you're smiling, watching, and enjoying it. Comedies can also mean, I guess, you know, the best comedies are laughing out loud all the time, but, you know, it has to have heart, and it has to have a little bit of soul to be a good comedy, and at the end, by the end of it, I'm just smiling at all the funny things he's doing, but he's not really, like, doing laugh lines, right? He's just sitting there playing the piano and giving people tickets and stuff like that, that it's humorous versus ha-ha, you know, knee-slapping funny. How about we get a plot summary, we can talk about this day, and talk about the day, and talk about the day. Arnie. Phil Connors... 
played by Bill Murray, is a self-centered Pittsburgh weatherman, worried only about himself and how to get more women and further his career. But that changes when he's sent on an assignment he loathes, going to Puxtatawney, Pennsylvania, to cover the annual Groundhog's Day ceremony. He's sent with his new producer Rita, played by Andy McDowell, and sardonic cameraman Larry, played by Chris Elliott. When Phil wakes up the morning of Groundhog Day, he doesn't know he's entered a time loop. He covers the ceremony in which the groundhog named Puxtatawney Phil sees his shadow, but the news crew can't go home. The roads are closed due to a snowstorm and the phone lines are down. When Phil wakes up the next morning, it's Groundhog Day again. And every day after, Groundhog Day keeps repeating. Phil first embraces this, using the looping day to seduce women, eat like a glutton, and act reckless knowing his actions have no consequences. But his repeated attempts to seduce Rita fail. Then depression sets in. Phil repeatedly tries to kill himself, but each time he does, he just wakes up again in his Puxtatawney B&B. But after a calm, celibate day spent with Rita, Phil has a change of heart. He starts using his days to try and help people, from being nice to Larry to trying in vain to save the life of a sick homeless man. He also learns how to play the piano, sculpt ice sculptures, and the answer to every Jeopardy question on that day's show. And Phil has a tremendous day. His speech at the Groundhog Day Festival moves people to tears. He saves a child from falling out of a tree, stops a man from choking, and his actions catch Rita's eye. They spend the evening hanging out and fall asleep fully clothed in his bed. And he wakes up to find it's February 3rd. The time loop has ended and he and Rita are in love. But Phil has also grown to love Pucks to Tawny and muses about moving there as credits roll. Now, Groundhog Day. I don't know if you guys, that was a big deal in your house for what? Is it a big deal in anyone's house? Are you going to give me a story <laughs> how it's a huge deal in the Carvalho home? It was a big deal in my house. I still get a card from Arnie every February 2nd. <laughs> It was, for some reason, my mother was way into Groundhog Day. She loved the weather. She loved when winter is going to end. <laughs> she see her shadow everywhere. <laughs> she'd just talk about it in the days leading up, and she could not wait. And every year, she'd be, like, smoking cigarettes and drinking some gin if he saw his shadow <laughs> and she had six more weeks of winter. The, the, the only connection I had with Groundhog Day is, if you listen to Primus, they had a song called Groundhog Day on their Frizzle Fry album. And, and so, if you mentioned Groundhog Day before this film came out, I would just think of that song, even though it's not even really about Groundhog Day. And the only connection I have is my best friend's birthday is Groundhog Day. <laughs> so, that's it. <laughs> is he nicknamed the Groundhog? No, if he played football, I bet he would be. But I do ask him if he saw his shadow of almost every birthday. And this movie actually just completely shaped my idea of what Groundhog Day was, because to me, it was just either in the paper, the guy on the news would say he saw his shadow, he didn't. Seeing the ceremony and everything, I'm like, okay, so this is Groundhog Day. My illusion was completely shattered researching this film and find out Puxtatawney Phil is but one of many weather forecasting rodents across the country. <laughs> if you are in... Pennsylvania, Puxtatawney Phil may be your thing, but if you're in North Carolina, there's Sir Walter Wally, or if you're in New Jersey, there's Milltown Mel. Guess what? In California, we have the sun. It was never a thing here. It's never cold. And Groundhog Day is celebrated in 49 states. Who doesn't celebrate it? Alaska? Alaska decided they would no longer celebrate it and replaced it with Marmot Day. Marmot. Okay. What's a marmot? Sounds like something Elmer Fudd would say. It's a large squirrel that you find yeah. in Alaska. All right. 
You've never heard of a marmot? No, I've never seen a marmot. <laughs> you might have. You might have thought it was a groundhog. They look really similar. <laughs> All right. But this is a real ceremony, Puxatani, Phil. And I read that they used to have like 2,000 people maybe show up. And then after this film, it went up to like 10,000 the next year. And now they're getting 40,000 people in Puxatani. I don't even know where they're staying. Everyone's just Airbnb in their homes out there. There's not 40,000 houses out there, I bet. And they have celebrities come now. Like the people from this movie have come out and been the grand marshal of the ceremony. It's remarkable how this has taken off to be its own thing. Both Bill Murray and Harold Ramis have been the grand marshal there. But before we're introduced to Groundhog Day, we're introduced to the crew of WPBH9, the Pittsburgh station, with Phil giving the weather forecast, which I absolutely love how he's doing all this pantomiming in front of a blue screen chroma key, and he's just seeing nothing. The first time I saw this movie, that was the first time I ever saw that's how the weather was done. So that was kind of cool. And I still enjoyed Bill Murray doing that. In this scene, I'm not sure if you guys noticed, but the first of two appearances by an actor who would later become a celebrity, but here is just one of their first jobs. The little guy who wanted to take over Phil's weather report for the Saturday broadcast, I think it was, is Willie Garson, who would go on to be one of the supporting players for Sex in the City. Do you guys ever watch Sex in the City? He was the bald gay guy who was friends with Charlotte. Did you recognize him in this movie? No, that means nothing to me. I never watched the show. <laughs> hey, I watched Sex in the City back in the day, but I'm unless it's Steve, I don't think I would have recognized him. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Steve and Mr. Big, those would be the two I'd catch. This actually, these were all shots done way late after test screenings. They were just going to start the movie with them rolling into Puxtatawney, and crowds were like, we want to know more about Phil and these people he's going with. So all these scenes were basically pickup shots at the very end. Arnie, I actually heard that the script started with him already reliving the day over and over again, and the viewers had to catch up. Yeah, I read that in an early draft, and there was narration, all that stuff I hate. <laughs> all that stuff, yeah. So you're saying they actually, when they finally got to film the script, they actually started with him arriving to Puxatawney. Right. The very first draft of the script that the writer gave to Harold Ramis started with him punching Ned. And then there was a voiceover that's like, you'll understand why I did all this. It would then explain it through backstory that he had a curse put on him, a voodoo curse by an ex-girlfriend who he cheated on. And he was cursed to do this for 10,000 days. And then he would be let out. So that was the original, original, original draft that went through many rewrites before we got to where we were. And Ramis said one of the things that drew him into it was you're just jumped right into the middle and he's in these loops and he's punching Ned. But the more he really looked at character arcs and things, he's like, people need to discover this with Phil. And so yeah. they kept moving it earlier and earlier. And then even after they were doing test screenings, they moved it earlier still so that we're in the evening weather forecast in Pittsburgh before the trip to Puxtatawney. And I like how this final version is presented here. I, th I think it's very efficient. It's only going to be about 20 minutes until we start looping Groundhog Day. But everything is told to us. We're going to understand Phil. He's a conceited jerk, especially when we get into that, what I call Groundhog Day Prime, <laughs> the original day where, you know, it sets up all the little characters in the town. But we see Rita here. She's the producer of the show. And you didn't know how that green screen stuff worked, Brock. We, we see her messing around with that. That feels like, you know, go on YouTube. You can find all those news bloopers where someone wears a green dress or something. But <laughs> we have a local newscaster who every Halloween wears a green dress in front of the green screen. So it looks like her head and hands are floating. 
Awesome. <laughs> awesome. And then, you know, you have Chris Elliott, who I love Chris Elliott, love the TV show Get a Life. He's the yes. goofy cameraman. Yes. Great show. Apparently, according to Ramus on the commentary, they're like, yeah, Chris Elliott, we loved him from David Letterman. And my wife knows him from David Letterman. Yeah, that's where he started. I never saw any of the Letterman stuff, but man, Get a Life on Fox was such a funny show. And Brian Doyle Murray was a uh, actor on that show i was a big fan of get a life so yeah chris elliott was actually one of the big motivators for me seeing this although i never did see cabin boy i just knew better oh i was gonna say someday we'll have to do cabin boy i'm shocked you never saw that <laughs> but these three together the one who strikes me as odd and i may be alone on this Andy McDowell. Where were you guys on Andy McDowell? At this time, I didn't know her really well. This is the first movie I remember seeing her in. Of course, I think she was in what Sex Lies and Videotape. That was her big one, right? But after this, she did Four Weddings and a Funeral, which to me was the quintessential Andy McDowell movie, right? So she's not a comedian. She's a leading lady, right? So it's nice that you have a grounded person like that because Chris Elliott can be very funny. And of course, Bill Murray can as well. I think it's nice to have someone who's a little more grounded and not a comedian and not competing for those comedic lines. She's just there playing it and enjoying it. You could tell that she's finding Bill Murray entertaining in a lot of these scenes you could actually see it on her face that she's really enjoying it you know when she's not angry at him yeah i don't know what the deal with Andy mcdowell is every time i see her i'm like oh why didn't she become a bigger thing and like she always pop up in something but i feel like yeah she never became like the star that other people did around that same time I knew her when this movie came out because of St. Elmo's Fire, where she was Emilio Estevez's love interest. Oh, yeah. At the ski lodge and everything. That was my big thing for her. But I'd seen her in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And I'd seen her in Hudson Hawk. <laughs> I guess I'd seen her because I saw this movie, but I don't remember it. Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan. She played Jane. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I suffered through that thing. Yeah, that's not a good one. But my thing with Andy McDowell is, to me, she has this classic Hollywood look like a 40s actress in that she never looked young. She doesn't look old. I'm not saying she's Agatha Christie here, but... No, you're right, Arnie, because I looked up. I'm like, is this one of those things where, like, Bill Murray's 40 and she's actually, like, 25? She's only, like, three years younger than Bill Murray in this, but she looks like, okay, you're young, right? But, yeah, she's, yeah, this timeless look to her, but, yeah, I get what you're saying. And she's also repeatedly in comedies where she isn't funny. Sometimes she's given the job to attempt to be funny, like Hudson Hawk, and other times she's just, like in this movie, kind of the straight person with funny people around them. It took this movie for me to warm to Andy McDowell. Before this movie, I was always just iffy on her. Even with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, I was still just not quite there in believing she had it. But now she became a really welcome presence in movies for me and she'd reteam with Ramus in Multiplicity a few years later. Right. I agree with you in that I never mind she's in the movie. It's maybe because of the goodwill of this and Four Weddings and a Funeral. But yeah, I would never watch a movie because she's in it. But if she's in the movie, I'd be very happy she was there. But they're the really the only three characters that are going to matter. This is Phil's movie. And even Chris Elliott as Larry. I wouldn't even say Larry matters. It's him and Rita. Yeah, he is the most constant of presences. And the thing I like about Larry, he'll never stand up to Phil, but he'll say the truth about Phil. You know, when Phil's like, keep the talent happy. 
<laughs> Larry's like, did he just call himself the talent? He's like the Greek choir of pointing out all of the asshole nature of Phil. He does get a couple of moments, but they're very late in the film that give Chris Elliott a chance to show what Chris Elliott does. But you're right. He's very much in a supporting role to the point where you can make an argument that he's wasted. You don't really need Chris Elliott in that role. But what he does bring to it is presence. You know, he does a lot with what he's given because it's really an underdeveloped role. And it's it's great to see him here because the three of us like Chris Elliott. But after we get to Puxtatawney, it's not very long before we get what Jacob called Groundhog Day Prime. And this movie, it reminds me of our discussion of Back to the Future. It is so tightly scripted in the information it gives. The way in the beginning of Back to the Future, we learn all these things about Marty McFly's life in the 80s so that we can then go to the 50s and experience them. Mm -hmm. Here in Groundhog Day Prime, it's very much the same. We're going to get everything we need in this one 15-minute day so that Everything that happens after is going to be an iteration or an evolution from it. And there's just little gags here, right? I mean, we learn they can't leave town after the ceremony. And the one that they just keep cutting to, I think, when they need a laugh is Phil trying to take a shower and there's no hot water. <laughs> and we've all been there. It's wonderful. As he goes through his day, we see him run into an old high school acquaintance, Needle Nose Ned. Bing! <laughs> played by Stephen Tobolowski. Because of this movie, I became a big fan of Stephen Tobolowski's. What else has he done? Oh my God, he's in everything. He actually, right after this, I saw him in Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase. We reviewed him, Jacob, in Memento. He was Sammy Jenkins. Remember Sammy Jenkins? The one who had the memory problem and his wife kept giving him the insulin till he died? I feel like Phil right now now as Ned is trying to describe himself and their relationship. No, I don't recall that. <laughs> Let me put it to you this way. He's a character actor. Yes, that's what I assume. He was in Sneakers before this also with the Robert Redford movie. Oh, I love Sneakers. Yes, I forgot. He was the one they have to go on a date with to get the password. Exactly. Yeah, he looks like he'd be the butt of a lot of jokes in movies. He is one of those character actors that you've seen a thousand times like David Morse or like a whole bunch of them from the 90s that you keep seeing over and over and over again. Like William Fickner. Another one, like these bunch of these character actors you become fans of because you see them over and over again. And Stephen Tobolowski is one of my favorites. And I knew him even before this movie. I didn't know him by name, but I knew certain people. You know, I knew like William Hickey was always the old guy, right? And I knew Stephen Tobolowski because he had a memorable role in L.A. Law. He was also in an episode of Seinfeld and a lot of sitcoms I watched as a kid. And I'd seen him in some movies, just again, minor roles in like Great Balls of Fire, Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael, Basic Instinct. He was very memorable and basic instinct. Yes. Yes, he was. So anyway, he's the old acquaintance of Phil Connors and Phil doesn't remember him and he is a memorable nerd and such a memorable scene. So when he comes back to it over and over again, we feel what Bill Murray's feeling like, oh, this guy again. And it's so much fun. There's certain things about this movie. I guess I've seen it so many times. The one that really gets me is how he's, when Phil steps into that puddle, right? And he goes, watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. The way he just delivers that and the fact that he'd have to say it again and again in that same exact inflection every time. It's an acting exercise that I enjoy watching him do. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. And the payoff is great. 
Yeah, and I'll notice that throughout the film. You'll see a lot of the same lines are similar. Things change just a little bit here and there. I guess it's like that butterfly effect. Phil steps a little differently that day. You're going to just change your greeting just slightly. That is one of the things I notice is you got to think anything Phil doesn't interact with should be identical day after day. I'm not entirely positive it is. Let me ask because we're going to get to day two. Groundhog Day 2, that's where we're going to realize, okay, he's in a loop. And so let's confront this now. Is it a problem for you guys that they don't explain this? Arnie, you said in an earlier version of the script, there was a curse from a girlfriend. There's no explanation given here. It's just the conceit of the film is that for whatever reason, Phil Connors is going to live this day over and over again until he gets it right. And then he gets to move on. And that's never going to get explained. Is it a problem? Honestly, no. And I'll tell you why. I'm having fun. If I enjoy the movie, I can go with it. You know, we always talk about, you said this a million times in the show, if you set your sandbox up and you play within your sandbox rules, I'll go along with it. If you set something up, I'm game to go along. So they set this whole thing up. I'm game to go along. The fact that they don't explain it is kind of part of the fun of it. And you can actually have a lot of discussions on what it actually means. And you can actually get a deep dive into that if you really wanted to. But the fact of the matter is, it's the conceit of the movie that makes everything else happen. And I am absolutely fine not knowing to this day. I never even question it, really, because it's just the, what the movie is about to get to the ending of this movie of he's finally become a good person. So, no, I'm fine. It didn't bother me when I first saw this movie, but I thought for sure that it was somewhere in the movie. Like, I ended up with a fan theory that I will tell you at the end of this movie <laughs> as to why this time loop happened and why the time loop ended. I can't wait. But I'll tell you my favorite theory that I read on Reddit is... Puxtatawny Phil controls the time loop. He's the seer of seers and the prognosticator of prognosticators, <laughs> and he was deeply offended when Connors called him a large squirrel predicting the weather. That's what I was worried about, that someone would say that. I am so glad this film isn't about a groundhog curse, <laughs> like you offended the giant squirrel, <laughs> and he has put a curse upon <laughs> you. And, you know, instead of six more weeks of winter, you're going to have to repeat this. You're right, Brock. There's something beautiful about just the simplicity. It's just, no, that's this universe. It's, again, magical realism. It's the conceit of this film. It's not too convoluted. And it's just, it's the one thing you got to give it. And okay, I'll give it. It's never bothered me. I wonder if people get upset that there's no explanation. We love to have, you know, you go on YouTube, the ending of every conceivable movie explained because we have to understand everything and dissect it. No, it's just, it's a fantasy. It's a fable. It's a metaphor. Yeah, it never bothered me. And but I was always theorizing. I always wondered why it wasn't until that 2006 DVD came out and I found out it was supposed to be this voodoo spell that I was like, okay, but they talked about different ways of introducing a method as to why this is happening. It would be hokey to see some woman standing over, you know, bubble, bubble, toil and trouble and things. It keeps the movie classy that it doesn't explain it, you know? I have another movie that has something similar, right? You have the movie Liar Liar with Jim Carrey. I was going to bring that up! Yes! And the whole conceit is the kid makes a birthday wish, and then the wish comes true, and he has to not lie. And while that's the conceit of that movie, and you do go with it because hilarity ensues. Allegedly. I enjoyed it when I watched it in the theater, and I've seen it quite a few times since then, but again, not in like 20 years. Save it for our Jim Carrey retrospective. Oof. We'll save it. <laughs> But the conceit there, you see it happen. And the one thing about that movie that doesn't really work for me is the why. 
wouldn't have been great for that movie if they didn't really explain it. It's just that the kid is disappointed and the next day he can't lie might have been a better way to go. This is a good example of how you can actually not have to explain it and it could still work out because you just go with it. I'm okay with the making a birthday wish and it comes true the same way I'm okay with there being a contract that you become Santa Claus when you kill the previous Santa Claus. <laughs> the same way there are so many movies where they make a wish and a wishing well and throw the coin in and then the magic hits. I'm okay if they explain it that way, but you'd have a hell of a hard time explaining why anyone wants Phil to relive Groundhog Day. <laughs> There's Woody Allen movies, I think, with people get hypnotized or voodoo curses. And there's tons of things like that that they just don't work. So the fact that they said, you know, this voodoo curse isn't needed here is a credit to them. They don't need to throw that in there because the movie can work without having to know exactly the reason. Good for them. And they set up the rules pretty easy. We see on the third day, Phil will break a pencil and put it by the clock. It was a pencil that was underneath in the bedstand. And when that six o'clock rolls around, that's the magic number, I guess. Everything resets. And now that pencil's whole again. You know, it does little things like that to kind of establish how this universe works. But I don't need to know the whole magic spell and all the words that I need to chant that give someone this curse. I like the simplicity here. I agree completely. I think that this just works. And you could easily take it as the magic of the town. Puxtatawney is this, Phil calls it a hamlet, and I think that's an actual good term for it. It's almost this magical, quaint, small town where, as Brock said, there's no computers. There's no cell phones, even though those were becoming more common. Hell, Zach Morris had a cell phone before this movie came out. It feels timeless, and I don't feel this movie dated poorly at all, because with the exception of the obligatory line, the phones are down, and my cell service isn't working. Other than that, this movie could be taking place today in a small town. There's a small town I go to every year for Christmas shopping that is much like this. It's just this quaint little tourist trap. Do they have pay phones there still? They do. That's the, that's the one thing that if I was watching this with my kids now, they actually might ask me, what is that? The thing is, Arnie, that yes, it also if you go on vacation, like a you know any part of the world, you can live in that kind of way still. So, and this is kind of like one of those little bed and breakfast kind of towns. What I do enjoy though, watching this movie so many times is that when he comes out like the third day, I think he talks to a woman and says, where are you going? He's like, it's, it's Groundhog's Day. We're going to the Groundhog. Later on, she comes out to be the piano teacher. And it turns out that she lives around the corner from him. And later, later on in the movie, when he's at the hospital, so that you see the kid who falls out of the tree with a broken leg behind the old man at the hospital. Like, there are little nuggets like that, that if you watch this movie enough, you can see it. It's not like community when they have things in the background. It's not like Game of Thrones or things pay off. But it has little tidbits like that here and there that are a lot of fun for repeat viewers. I never noticed the kid with the broken leg, Brock. That's cool i'll look for that next time yeah i didn't notice him yeah is the psychologist anywhere he might be my favorite towns person or maybe it's just the way bill murray is phil connor's treats and when he asked if he went to veterinary psychology and <laughs> bill murray did a lot of ad-libbing here for somebody who wanted the movie to be more dramatic his ad-libs are usually the funniest things and Harold Ramis, you know, you got to take away the possible explanations, right? You got to take away it's all in his head. So you bring in a psychiatrist. You got to take away something like he has a tumor in his brain and he's going to die in the last scene. So they bring in Harold Ramis to do an x-ray of his head and say, you're physically fine, but a good director cameo there. Yeah. Then it just becomes a cycle. And it's interesting how he 
comes to terms with this so quickly. I mean, by day three, he's just telling Rita, I'm not doing the report. You do the report. Come see me in the diner. You're the producer. We have to do something. I think the turning point was when he went out with those drunk guys in the car and woke up and there was he wasn't in jail and things like that. And the next day he started like he punched Ned the next day and he started doing carelessness. So like I think the the drunks and that was one of my favorite lines too when he says something to the about like you ever feel like nothing you do matters and the drunk just says that about sums it up for me. And I oh my god was that funny. Those drunks by the way the one Gus I recognized him when I saw this movie the first time. I'm a big fan of the Burbs. Yeah yeah. He's the neighbor Rick Ducommon. He's also one of the brownies. He's the brownie who is not Kevin Pollack in Willow. No, that's the other guy. What? Rick Overton (laughs) is the brownie. Rick Ducommon is the burbs. Okay, there you go. I got my Ricks mixed up. There, yes, we're, okay. They're both named Rick. Can you believe it? (laughs) I mean, come on, guys. Where's Moranis in all of this? (laughs) Let's get more Ricks. You know, I think one of the reasons people warmed up to this film and, and grasped onto it and it's become a classic, I can use that word again, is because Phil's arc, it's very relatable. You know, he starts off as a jerk and then he kind of goes into this panic and then he realizes, oh, nothing that I do matters. And I think anyone in this situation, like, okay, let's go crazy. Let's, they keep a PG-13 here, or PG really, where we're going to punch someone, we're going to drive down the rails. But if you're going through this cycle, that is... I think one of the first things you try out is just like, oh, no consequences. I'm going to do whatever then. I love that the first thing he decides to do is Nancy. Yes. He sees this hot girl in the diner and day one, he's like, what's your name? Where'd you go to high school? Who's your English teacher? Very next day, we went to high school together and gets her in bed that night. Because he has a time limit. There's no second date for him. But they also start playing in the seats here. And again, talking about this efficient, tight script. Yeah, that's played as funny, the way he picks up Nancy and he's able to better, but then he starts saying Rita when they're making out. Oh, planning those ideas. Okay, he's got a thing for his new producer. Now that's only on cycle five of this entire thing. Do you buy it? Do you buy that it was love at first sight with Rita? That's a little far. I think it's a lot because also she's the one who's saying no to him and maybe that's a bit of the attraction is that she's not buying what he's selling, right? I also kind of like, though, that when you guys are talking about the example of the female that he he seduces, what he's doing is it's a little evil, right? It's a little wrong, like robbing the armored car. It's wrong. It's against the law. But the way he does it is humorous. And the way he does it with her to get her in bed is humorous. It's definitely wrong, but it's not like he's killing people, right? It's not like he's doing horrible things. No, that's what I'm saying. This is very PG. Yes, he's going to do some wild and crazy things. I know that's Steve Martin, not Bill Murray. Wild and crazy guy. (laughs) But it's all PG. It's, yeah, we're going to steal some quarters from the armored car. I guess the guy drops quarters and he steals a bag of cash. But it's not, you know, victimless crime there. Yeah, it's not like he's really stealing because the money's back the next day. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just want to make the point that, yeah, he does some stuff that it's wrong. And some people would think, you know, with this power, I get to do things wrong. And so he, I like the movie shows us before, you know, he goes through stages. And I kind of like that they show us that he goes and does these things like hitting Ned and stealing money that in the back of our heads that we would all every once in a while want to do, even though we probably would never act on that. And I kind of like they went there without going too far down the rabbit hole of like, you know, 
murdering people. It's because we're doing this before Happy Death Day, but I did go dark. Like, if I was having this day lived over and over, how many thousands before I decide to try vivisection? You know? I mean, really? No, no, I agree, Artie. If this was my Groundhog Day, nightmare. Don't even want to talk about what's going to happen. I mean, eventually, if there's no consequence, do I kill people? Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, No, that's not a question. I do kill people. There's no consequence. Could I live with myself if I killed someone, even if they came back to life? (laughs) But I think because this is Bill Murray, and there's that dark edge to him, something, you just look at him and he looks disgruntled, even though, yeah, this is all PG stuff, it does just feel a little slightly sinister, just gives it a little bit of edge for me. Thank goodness this isn't Tom Hanks. Let me tell you something that hurt, though, this time is he also just goes completely gluttonous and he's eating all the pancakes and donuts. And Andy McDowell says, I like to see a man of advancing years throwing caution to the wind, which made me pause the movie. Look it up. He's younger than me. Yeah. Yeah. He was 43. (laughs) I'm 44. I'm of advancing years. I have to tell you, though. I have tried shoving angel food cake in my mouth, just like Phil Connors has many a time. It's hard. It's hard to do with that big kind of wedge, but he does it. That's amazing. And he didn't have a spit bucket. He actually swallowed that stuff. I read that too, yes. I understand he got pretty sick though from the angel food cake. (laughs) So the next stage of this, he's starting to take notes about how he can get Rita, right? And he says things out loud, like repeats, like, uh, what is it, like, no white chocolate, no whatever. Why would he say that out loud? I mean, if you want to complain about anything, why would he say it out loud? Because she catches him a couple of times, or at least once, about why are you saying things? Again, it doesn't matter. He knows he's not going to use that until the next day. And I, I think that's there for the audience. It's to signal to the audience, oh, okay, that's setting up the next joke that he's going to remember what kind of chocolate. And so when they keep doing that over and over, now we get what's going on. And what I love about this is that they don't even bother going back to the hotel room. They just start right over the scene right over again. He comes, he walks back into the bar. That is one of the things I remember people laughing at is just, yeah, when it just does these repeated montages, it just keeps cutting straight to that. It's like take after take after take after take. There's something funny about that instead of seeing the whole buildup all over again. Just agreed. Mm-hmm. It's a choose your own adventure, right? I mean, you see where it went wrong and then you just go back to the last choice and choose the other choice, right? It's cheating at that. I used to do that and (laughs) i think it's actually very sophisticated storytelling in that we do just trust the audience yep this is the next day or many many days later and just seeing it go wrong see it go right see it go wrong see it go right and however many times it takes he does get a true romantic moment with her when he builds the snowman presumably for the first time we're seeing this and gets in a snowball fight with some kids and then they roll in the snow together and it's just one of those spontaneous moments he almost gets her to bed from that and it's so painful when you see him try to reattempt that and he's like i would have lots of kids you want to have lots of kids i want to have tons of hey kids let's have a snowball fight like there's such something so manic about him that he's trying to recreate this perfect moment and he just can it's so frustrating like he jumps down next to her and there's just no chemistry there's no almost a kiss like there was the time before and great on the actors for selling that right that they can Mm -hmm. sell they had the chemistry and then sell that they didn't but man i had a hard time watching that scene there's a certain level of cringe involved with that performance bill murray's giving oh yeah oh yeah i had to look away it was really like a bad car wreck and now i can enjoy it but man that was hard for me to watch truthfully 
And isn't that followed by the slap montage too? Which must have really hurt Bill Murray. Yeah, you get eight slaps. Eight slaps. But man, that's funny, but I started feeling a little bit of a cringe. Like, oh man, because he kept getting hit and, and she really hit him. It was very funny. Yeah, and she really hit him. Yes. They did it with every camera setup at a new location. They just have her come in and slap him and his face started to <laughs> like inflame and he was getting pissed. Yeah, and this is where you see the scheming Phil Connors who's going to do whatever he wants or he's going to trick Rita into falling in love with him to depressed Phil Connors. You know, we, we're going to see... This is where I love this shot of this clock. Remember these clocks when they had those flaps that would rotate? It wasn't all LED. You get that like low angle of it just falling down to six o'clock. Oh, yeah. I had those in my house in the early 80s, late 70s. But this is Pucks to Tawny. Yeah, I I love the way they shoot that. Yes. (laughs) What they said, and I never got this, but I like this, is this movie is taking through like the five emotional stages of accepting death and he starts with denial and then gets into anger so he's acting out in anger he's driving on train tracks and scaring the drunks and going to jail and the third stage is then depression and this is where if the movie was funny it's gone here because murray's performance when he's watching jeopardy is the hardest thing (laughs) he's just so it's hysterical yeah when he says titty caca i'm laughing Maybe because Diddy Cock is a funny word. Yeah, I love that. I love how he goes downstairs in his bathrobe, just unplugs the toaster, and walks back out of the scene. And, like, you know, and it, I think, and they show the lights go flickering. That's dark, but man, is that funny. His first death, he's like, I'm going to kill the groundhog. And originally, he was going to kill the groundhog at the thing, and then Ramus realized they were recreating scenes of Caddyshack with the squirrel. I did get that vibe. So they go on a car ride, and I do love he drives the car off a cliff. Chris Elliott gets the best moment there. The car crashes. He could be okay. And the thing explodes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's there's obvious comedy beats in this. That's why I'd call this a comedy, because, yeah, you get these moments like where Bill Murray's like, it's cold out there today. It's cold out there every day. But then, yeah, when he steals Puxatani Phil and goes on that chase, like, just the, again, I'm sure they're ad-libs, and he's like, just look at your mirrors out of the corner of your eyes. I don't know. It takes me back to Driver's Ed when I was 15, and, yeah, it's just this weird thing I've always remembered. So seeing these little moments like that, yeah, a lot of laughter for me from this whole chase. I still quote, don't drive angry. Don't drive yes. angry. Yes. <laughs> I actually like on these death things, there's the one where he flies down from the bell tower. Oh, you're talking <laughs> about the suicide montage. Yes. yes. Then Chris Elliott's there and like, he was a good friend of mine. A good, good friend. <laughs> Just the way everybody loves the dead person. There is some truth in that, you know? It's Oh, yeah. I mean, there is a loneliness when you just see him there and Rita and Larry show up to identify him. And But I think then you get into some real philosophical stuff. And I do think it's weird. He's dying every day. And then he remembers. He remembers all these days. There is no talk about, did he see a light? Did he see God? Was there nothing? They don't get into anything like that. But he will refer to himself as a God. Not the God, but a God. Yeah, maybe God isn't omnipotent. He's just been around a long time and knows everything. <laughs> exactly. And I think, again, people who like to look at pop culture and go look at it, it's, it's a silly comedy, but there are deeper things in here. And I read that Harold Ramis, his wife was a Buddhist, so there's a lot of Buddhist philosophy throughout this film. And But every religion has, like, I've heard Jewish people talk about this film, Christians, like, they all have their own interpretations with this film. It, it really speaks to people. The one thing they didn't do, which is probably smart, they didn't have him try to stay up all night. 
because it, when it turns six o'clock, the day resets, right? That's what we're implying anyway. What would have happened? See, if he doesn't die, he always falls asleep. I was wondering that myself. I really was if there was a time when he just tried to stay awake and the next thing he knew he was waking up. I mean, it's interesting. You say about the light. My thinking is the moment he loses consciousness from his mortal coil, he wakes up in that bed again. I don't think there's a light because he's not going to heaven. He's going back to bed in the B&B. But... Then after we get through the suicide and he just gives up, what turns him around on it is just a day of friendship with Rita. And that's kind of a nice scene where they're just, he mentions he spent six months of a couple hours a day learning to toss cards into a hat. And yeah, I tried counting the number of days. There's around 36, 37 or so days that I counted. Now they obviously jump at one point, you know, they go to see Heidi too. That's got to be a joke, right? Yes. I looked for Heidi too on IMDb. Doesn't exist. It's got to be just a joke about things repeating, but he's seen that a hundred times. Yeah. Throwing the cards took him six months to master that he's gonna learn how to play the piano that there are a lot of theories ice sculpture uh, yes ice sculpture a lot of theories about how many years or days or however long he spent in this loop according to harold ramus they figure it's around 10 years based upon how long it takes to play the piano and things and for the first time in my life i got to watch the deleted scenes for this he also became a pool sharp and a master bowler because there was one scene in the bowling alley where the drunks are like you seem like a half glass empty kind of guy. And I'm thinking, yeah, they're in a bowling alley. If I had forever, I'd get real good at bowling. And sure enough, he was, which would lead right into his role as Big Earn and Kingpin, of course. <laughs> I looked up on YouTube. There's two videos in particular that actually try to calculate the amount of days that Phil Connors was in this loop. And the two most popular videos on YouTube either have it at 4,576 days, which comes to 12 years, six months, and 11 days, that's very specific. Oh, it gets worse. The one I liked more, the other video I thought was a little more realistic, quote unquote, with how long it takes someone to learn to play the piano and ice sculptures, etc. They estimated at 12,395 days, which will have Phil Connors living the same day over and over for 33 years, 350 days. So almost 34 years. One thing I liked that... Ramus mentioned in the commentary that I wish they would have included. They would have had to have given some hard numbers to this, though, was they had in an early draft of the script the way Phil kept track of how many days it had been. He'd read all the books in the B&B, &B, but he'd read one page a day, and so he'd be able to add the number of pages in the books together because he can't write it down. It'll be erased the next day. And so by reading one page a day and knowing where he left off and knowing which books he read, he can count how many hundreds of days he's been there. Oh, that's clever. And it shows him... You know, he's going to start quoting French poetry because that's something Rita likes, and he's going to quote other pieces of literature. <laughs> he does this whole Chekhov soliloquy for Buxatani Phil. Yes. It also shows him becoming educated. He's expanding his mind one page at a time. That's what I think is clever with the script is after you get through the depression and he kind of finds a purpose and we're going to see him, you know, now he's trying to become a good guy. The day's going to reset a few more times throughout this film, but it almost feels like here's almost the final version of what his last day was like. Like, here's all the good stuff. Every time he's talking to Rita, I don't feel like, hey, Rita, I got to convince you that I've been doing this over and over and over. Like, it just has this flow to it where there are days that are repeating, but we see this evolution now and it just goes real smooth. 
But before he's able to do the final cycle, we have the soul of the movie, uh, the homeless man and how he tries to save him. Oh, I almost cry every time I see this. Yeah, and so he's trying to save the man and the man, he can't save him. So it was just the man's time to die. That day that Phil's living over and over, over again, that's the day that man dies. So that also brings up fate. That brings up a whole other bunch of concepts. But it also grounds the movie and I think is the final straw of what Phil has to learn before he can have his final cycle, before he can have his final day. It humanizes him. You see him ignore the guy. You know, he pats his pockets. Ah, I don't have any money. And then you see him just give him a lot of money and then go on his way. And then he finds out he dies. And then he's taking him to the hospital. Then he's feeding him soup and getting him more food. Like every step he's taking, he's becoming closer to this person. You know, it's not just, oh, throw some money at a chair and let them take care of it. He's personally trying to help this guy, and it's another lesson he has to learn that, yeah, sometimes it's your time to go. Exactly. I took this as accepting there are things you can't control, which he had not yet found, other than Rita. He can't control Rita. But what I didn't get from this that the commentary pointed out is it's also him coming to terms with he is not God. He cannot control life and death. He briefly thought he might have been a god. Here he's seeing there are things gods can control that he cannot. Hmm. Good point. But we'll still see him doing everything he can. You know, he runs to save that kid that's falling out of the tree. I love the line, you never thank me. And <laughs> then he goes and helps the old ladies with their flat tire. And oh, it's the guy from the road service. Like, I wish AAA showed up that fast. He's at the party that night and he's playing piano and there's that young couple that he surprises with WrestleMania tickets. Did you guys recognize who the young man who was getting married was? I did not, but I'm listening to the commentary, and Ramus says, that's a good actor I worked with, Michael Shannon. He's still working now. That's Michael Shannon? That's Michael. I gotta go back and watch it now. And I'm like, is that the Michael Shannon? I just did a what the f***, <laughs> and I had to immediately Google to see if it was the Michael Shannon. It can't be Michael Shannon because I wasn't scared of him. I'm always scared when I see Michael Shannon. So I'm watching the movie with my wife. The tall guy's there. I'm like, that guy looks like Michael Shannon. And then he starts to talk. And I'm like, holy cow, that's Michael Shannon. That's amazing. This might have been his first role. And it was. I looked it up afterwards. And my wife's like, that's great. You've recognized him. Who's Michael Shannon? And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't recognize him, but I'm listening to the commentary, and that was like a record scratch moment. Michael Shannon was like, what? <laughs> First time I recognized him in the movie. Like, obviously, it's been 20 years since I've watched it, but it's always fun to see these kind of little like first job things. Well, the really funny thing is that commentary was recorded like in 2006, and Michael Shannon still wasn't a big enough name for him to be like, well, that Michael Shannon, he went on to be. No, it was just like, Michael Shannon, he's still working. Yeah, he got his first Oscar nomination a couple years later from that commentary being recorded for Revolutionary Road, but it's fun to see him. I had no idea. The one character actor, other than the guy from The Burbs, who I really liked, He's just listed as man in hallway. The actor is Ken Hudson. Mm -hmm. He would go on to be in Armageddon. Actually, Arnie, I recognized him at the time. He was the slothy guy on Herman's head. Lust, technically, but there yes, you go. that's yes. what I knew him as when I saw this movie, because for me, he was forever lust. There's a lot of deep knowledge about Herman's head on this show. Well, I'm telling you, <laughs> it was a it was a Fox show just like Get I, a Life. Oh, I remember it. I can tell you who played lust. It was on right after Get a Life. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> and he also was in Down Periscope and Armageddon. But yes, he was lust from Herman's head. Yeah, totally. <laughs> But yeah, we're in this final day, and I often wonder how, I mean, he says to the kid in the tree, you've never thanked me. And so he's obviously saved that kid a lot, but 
how many times has he lived this final day? That speech he gives, does he write a new speech every day? Does he only go every 50 days after he's perfected his speech? <laughs> I really start getting into the minutia. That's why I'm complimenting the editing here is, you know, when you see him becoming a good guy, you want it to go pretty smoothly and you get a sense of what this day was like, even though they're breaking it up. I got to tell you, Arnie, I never once doubted that he only lived the final day once because I think he got it right and he earned the right to move on. No, you know he messed up on that piano solo a couple of times and had to like, redo the whole day. <laughs> How many times did he live an almost perfect day is my question. How many times did he come close and not get there? All right, you guys want to know what my fan theory was? Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm ready. Oh, no. Yes. So we're at the party at the end of the perfect day, the final day. And who's at the party? Needle Nose Ned. And he goes on and on. This guy bought whole life. He bought term life. I'm like, he just needed to buy life insurance. He needed to insure his life to get his life to move on. See, I always thought this was one of the funniest jokes because you know that's real expensive. That insurance, that's all a racket. And he's gotten everything. And now he's stuck with it. He's going to have to call Ned up and cancel all those policies. I always felt like he bought all that just to be nice to Ned. I just felt like that was how he got out of the loop. Is he By life insurance? He finally bought the insurance. It was probably the only time in 10,000 days that he bought the life insurance and he got to go to the next day. That was the key. He had that same day, except he didn't buy the life insurance. He had to redo it. He's like, there's something I'm missing. Ah, life insurance. That's it. Except he's being a good person. He's not scheming. This is the interesting thing, is he's just living to be good, not ever thinking he'll be out of it. Right. Uh, he's given up that hope. He's just being nice every day. And so he probably saved that kid many times and changed that tire many times and saving his brother, Brian Doyle Murray, from choking. I think he's done that so often and... He's not doing it with the hope of reward. He has surpassed that. Because that would be selfish, Phil, thinking, if I'm good to others, I'll finally get out of prison. And again, I think that goes to that Buddhist philosophy. If you watch The Razor's Edge, which is adapted from a book, but Bill Murray really wanted to do that. It's not great. It's all right. He doesn't quite pull it off. But one of the big things is that he comes home as a soldier from World War One, and he's just trying to figure out life. And, you know, he lives the decadent life in France and then becomes a monk. And he's, he's just trying to figure out how to find peace. It is very similar to this. I think this is a better version, but one of the famous lines is like, I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't have it memorized, but basically it's easy to live the good life when you're a monk because what's the temptation? You're just sitting in a temple all day, not talking, not doing anything. So you see that here he is going through and he's got to do all this work. He's got to run from house to house to save people and fix tires. And yeah, there is a selflessness to him at this point where he's not grumbling about, he's not complaining. He's achieved that nirvana or whatever state it is. I, I'm sure some, one of our listeners is a real Buddhist and can tell me, but he has achieved that enlightenment in this film. So Arnie, to clarify then, the version we saw, he lived once. You may have lived that day close to the perfect day, sure, a thousand times, but the version we see in the movie is the final version, the one he gets right. And I think that's probably the only time that Rita is so impressed by him and his not being interested in her. He's basically doing that 
pickup scheme where you ignore the hot girl so she's more interested in you so she pays $338 for him at an auction and 88 cents which was a lot of money in 93 I just want to tell people (laughs) and the follow up with Chris Elliott is a perfect Chris Elliott moment when the old lady buys him for what two bits 25 cents yeah that's fantastic just fantastic so the movie he wakes up the next day with Rita and decides to stay in Puxatawney it feels a very satisfying ending there is apparently a lot of debate about how they should wake up did they sleep together did they not sleep together they're dressed right i feel like they didn't sleep together agreed they're in actual day clothes they're not in pajamas they're actually in the clothes they wore the night before right they decided it was going to be a celibate night what i found interesting if not slightly out of character is the next morning phil's excited and amorous and rita's like why weren't you like this last night like rita was really ready to go at it last night when We got the impression time and time again, Rita just wasn't that kind of girl. Yeah, but she was swept off her feet and ready to go because of that. And I do think Phil, he does the honorable thing because he's had somewhere between, uh, I don't know, 10 and 100 years, who knows, to figure out who she is and get to know her. And she's still getting to know him. He definitely got an advantage here. So I'm glad he doesn't take advantage of that in the end. Yeah, I agree. So if this was me, the snow has melted from the roads. It's a new day. Even though I'm a better person, don't you want out? (laughs) Don't you want to take a vacation? And Phil's like, let's move here. Is he got Stockholm syndrome? No, I think that's just in screenwriting, storytelling. That's the arc that this is the place he hated. And now he's in love with it. It's like Doc Hollywood. He's going to stay there and be the doc. No, and I'm being cynical by asking that question. I'm coming to it, looking to nitpick, but (laughs) I like this ending. It's a sweet ending, and it doesn't protract it. We start the day. He's in love. It's a brand new day, and they just walk out of the house and credits roll. I'm glad we don't have to also have the drive back to Philadelphia with Larry and his raspberry donut. But before we start the show over tomorrow... Why don't we get to recommends? Jacob, Arnie, do you recommend Groundhog Day? Jacob. Oh, definitely. I I don't think I hit my hand very well here. I consider this a classic for a reason. There's a simplicity to it, which you take all this, oh, repeating timelines and all this philosophy, but... It presents it very simply in a humorous manner, lighthearted manner. There are poignant emotional moments. Like I said, the whole montage with the homeless man, I do get very emotional during all that. I get swept up by Phil Connors. You know, I forget about Bill Murray and this guy who was such a jerk and now he's doing everything he can to help this man, whether that's acting on Bill Murray's part, directing on Harold Ramis's part, a combination of both, whatever it is, it comes together for a great magical realism rom-com for me. And I am not the fan of rom-coms, but I will watch this film day after day after day after day and not complain. Ask me on the 10,000th viewing in a row. Maybe I'll complain then, but no, I love this movie. To me, it is a comedy classic, but it's got a ton of heart. It's not just about the laughs. Strongest of recommends. Arnie. It's definitely a recommend, and I don't think I've hid that either. It is the heart that gets to me, even the first time. There are humorous moments, but this to me isn't one of those laugh out loud funny movies. It's one of those kind of more wry movies that I smile at, yet it's the emotion behind it. And the fact that this movie made me think when I saw it, I was 18 years old and I was asking myself, 
am I living the same day over and over again? It felt like it. I was waking up and going to the same classes and doing the same things and delivering the same pizzas and watching the same shows. It really got me thinking philosophically. And what I like is how tightly it's written without feeling overscripted. You know, again, I picked on, and I love Back to the Future. The first one. Yes, the first one. <laughs> but I picked on it years ago because I felt it was a little overscripted and too clever by half. Here, it's just the right amount of clever. I really think this is very close to cinematic perfection in, as Jacob said, its simplicity. It is what it is, and it doesn't try to be more. It's just a small town, a story of a single man on a single day, and I love it for that. But, Jacob, it's almost like you jumped into my head because you said you could watch this day after day. My only reservation about this movie is I had to take a deep breath and go, all right, we're watching Groundhog Day again. It's kind of like the Pearl Jam song, Jeremy. Jeremy came out in, I think it was 93, and loved Jeremy. And for 20 years, loved Jeremy. And then I realized they play Jeremy just too goddamn much. On the radio, I can't escape Jeremy. If you're going to hear Pearl Jam on the 90s on 9, it's probably Jeremy. You know, it's just that song is everywhere to the point that I can't listen to Jeremy anymore. <laughs> It's I still a very good song, but if it's on the radio, I have to turn it off. And I'm almost there with Groundhog Day. The 24 hours of a Groundhog Day thing has gotten to the point where I didn't feel like I needed to watch it for this review. Part of me, I didn't feel like I wanted to watch it for this review because I've seen it so much that I just... I need to have distance from it to appreciate it more. It's just omnipresent. But it's a great movie. I see why it is omnipresent, and it's a strong recommend. I'm right there with both of you. I'm definitely recommending the movie. There's no doubt about that. Of course, this one's going to get three green arrows. Why wouldn't it? But Arnie, to what you just said, Ghostbusters is that way for me. I cannot sit there from start to finish and watch Ghostbusters at this point. I don't want to. I can't. And the last time I tried, I did not have a good time. I need an excuse to watch Groundhog Day. I've seen it a lot. Not recently, as we've talked about, but it's... Such a great movie, such a classic comedy to me, and I'm glad we had the excuse to rewatch it for this show. It's been so long since I've seen it. I had a great time revisiting the movie, had a great time laughing out loud again. I was surprised how much I actually laughed out loud, and I was embracing how the scenes with the heart and the soul that we talked about uh, touched me. So it definitely plays very well now, 25 years plus later. But the three of us knowing this movie so well, yeah, I can't imagine I'm going to rewatch this movie anytime soon, but only because I've seen it a lot of times. If you haven't seen it recently, folks, I would recommend checking it out again. If you've never seen it, by all means, go ahead and do it. But definitely keep this in mind as probably one of the strongest comedies in our lifetime. This is one of those movies that it's very easy to recommend and is very easy to love. So definite recommend. Yeah, if I can add an addendum to mine, I've seen Pearl Jam in concert several times. They always play Jeremy. When I see them live... Is that when you go to the bathroom? I love that song. I love it with the live performance. And that's how I felt watching Groundhog Day this time. I kind of took a big sigh as I put it in, but just sitting there and watching it for the sake of watching it and paying attention and analyzing it made me enjoy it more than I have in years. Would you then go to Broadway and watch the musical version? There's a musical? Oh, yeah. 
nominated for Tony Awards and everything. Oh, wow. I was in New York while it played. I didn't see it. It was going to have a national tour. I kind of thought I might see it then. It then never did get a national tour. Did either of you see it? No, I didn't even know it existed. No. I saw the one song on the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, I think, or maybe it was a Tony Awards show. I don't remember. And I did enjoy the song. But I did question why another movie made into a musical. I mean, obviously, it's because of name recognition. But then I thought about it. I have seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the musical. And it's the same thing as you would expect it to be. And I love that movie. And I I laugh a lot at that movie. It's a very funny movie. But that doesn't really ring like, we got to make a musical out of this. But Groundhog Day, I think, could work. But I can't say it does. But I don't think it ran very long on Broadway. It got great reviews. It was nominated for all sorts of awards. But since it didn't win any, it left Broadway much in the way that Legally Blonde did when it was made into a musical. So that was a musical? Oh, yeah. You'd be surprised how many movies that we watched. Ring It On's been a musical. Elf. Christmas Story, mentioned earlier in the show. All on Broadway. Like, not off-Broadway. On Broadway. Shrek. All of it's been on Broadway. SpongeBob SquarePants. I'm not kidding. Well, since I couldn't go see it, I did the closest thing. I got the CD of the original Broadway cast recording and listened to all the music. And I feel like I've had at least 50% of the play experience because the entire story is told through song. If there's dialogue scenes, they must be short. And I went in and I am not the musical guy. If there was one of us to listen to this musical. It'd be me. It should be Brock. Yeah, it should I, be. Do, I do not like musicals. I go to New York twice a year. People are like, what show are you seeing? I'm like, well, not a musical. I'm Wicked. You couldn't pay me to see Wicked. It's really not my genre. I find them all pretty banal. And so I went in, arms crossed, like this is like asking a vegan to do a restaurant review of a churrascaria. But all right, I'm going to listen to the soundtrack. And damn it if I didn't find myself laughing and smiling at the changes they made. They made Phil younger. They brought up cell phones. They modernized it. So it was, the play was just two years ago, 2017 we're talking. And so they brought it into that age. They had Phil complaining how Puxtatawney had no cell phone service. They kept the story and they kept the heart, but brought new dialogue and made the characters new. And I really enjoyed it. It won me over. And that's a musical. Well, all right. I'm gonna, going to introduce you to one of my good friends, Stephen Sondheim. Arnie, you're going to love it. Brock, you love musicals. I, I highly recommend you pick up. It's on Amazon Music. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you don't even have to pay to listen to it. You can just listen to the whole thing. And if you like Groundhog Day, I think you'll like that show. I did. Fantastic. All right. And Groundhog Day has been ripped off so many times now, though, as we said at the top of the show. I mean, you just call it Groundhog Day with whatever. And it's surprising to me that it's recently had a real cinematic comeback. And we'll be discussing that more next week with the horror remake. If you watch Groundhog Day and like, I like it but it needs more stabbings. The next (laughs) week is for you. We'll be reviewing Happy Death Day and in anticipation of the new Happy Death Day sequel, Happy Death Day to You, coming out later this year. And that's our next show is Happy Death Day. There is no show this Friday. This is the first Friday in almost six months that we will not be having a bonus show. So while we take a big breath and kind of regain energy for our next big push if you guys want a show this friday our 
fall winter donation drive is still going on just until St. Patrick's Day for the new Leprechaun, but you can get a ton of bonus reviews right now. 11 M. Night Shyamalan reviews ending with Glass and then the three Jamie Lee Curtis horror reviews that Brock Stewart and I did, and then the five Dario Argento Suspiria reviews, including that Suspiria remake that came out on video just a couple weeks ago. All of that is still available for just a little while longer, then it will no longer be available from us, and the prices will go up on the individual episodes on Podbean. All the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And while you're at it, if you can go to iTunes and leave us five-star reviews, we would greatly appreciate it. Five-star reviews help us with the show. It helps people find us who haven't over-discovered us. And also, you can let us know what we're doing right, and we'd really appreciate that. So please, go to iTunes, leave us those five-star reviews, and you can also discuss the show in our forums or on Facebook, Twitter, and other social medias of your choice. We're all over the place. Please, become part of our community and let us know what you think. I have heard that if you're stuck in a time loop, one of the good deeds you have to do to get out is give us a five-star review on itunes (laughs) we will put that to the test when we rejoin next week for happy death day until then watch that first step it's a doozy when Chekhov saw the long winter he saw a winter bleak and dark and bereft of hope Yet we know that winter is just another step in the cycle of life. But standing here among the people of Punxsutawney and basking in the warmth of their hearths and hearts, I couldn't imagine a better fate than a long and lustrous winter. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. It's the perfect end to a perfect day. We hope you've enjoyed the show. It's a perfect day. You couldn't have planned a day like this. Well, you can. It just takes an awful lot of work. If you enjoyed this show, please tell others. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. I'm just amazed, and I'm not easily amazed. About what? How you can start a day with one kind of expectation and end up something completely different. Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In our archive section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. You're missing all the fun. These people are great. Some of them have been partying all night long. They sing songs till they get too cold, and then they go sit by the fire, and they get warm, and then they come back, and they sing some more. A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. Something is different. Good or bad? Anything different is good. Hmm. This could be real. Now playing relies on listener support to keep operating. Well, what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at nowplayingpatron.com. I'm just trying to give you your money's worth. You paid top dollar for me. 
At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution. You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What do you say? What do you say? You little brat. You have never thanked me. I'll see you tomorrow. Maybe. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. Sometimes I think you just have to take the big chances. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. Uh, just stay for a while, and then if you like it, stay for a while longer. Let's not spoil it, okay? Not spoiling it. I don't want to spoil it either. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're God. I'm a God. I'm not the God. I don't think. Associate produced by Jason Latham. You like producing, but you hope for more than Channel 9 Pittsburgh. Well, everyone knows that. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. It doesn't make any difference. I've killed myself so many times. I don't even exist anymore. Now Playing credits read by Brock. I would love to stand here and talk with you, but I'm not going to. (laughs) The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You know, people like blood sausage too. People are morons. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. I don't see any other way out. He's gotta be stopped, and I have to stop him. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. It's the same thing your whole life. Clean up your room, stand up straight, pick up your feet, take it like a man. Be nice to your sister. Don't mix beer and wine, ever. Oh yeah, don't drive on the railroad track. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. You know, you want a prediction about the weather, you're asking the wrong Phil. I'll give you a winter prediction. It's gonna be cold, it's gonna be gray, and it's gonna last you for the rest of your life. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. It is the end of a very long day.
Today, we're talking about Groundhog Day, starring Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, Chris Elliott, Stephen Tobolowski, directed by Harold Ramis. I was thinking maybe you could just repeat that instead of me doing it over and over again, because I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it'd be funny to repeat it. I'm like, I don't want to keep doing this. Okay. Bang! Third comedy view for now playing, like Casino Royale. Pineapple Express. <laughs> I thought you meant the Daniel Craig one, and you really threw me for a loop. I'm like, is he being Oh, uh, I just lose it with laughter when he's getting his balls pounded in that film. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Bang! I think this happens with every comedian. They reach a point where they're tired of being the funny guy, and they want to be taken seriously. They want to do more drama. Except Adam Sandler. Hey, you put one of Adam Sandler's dramatic films in our book. He's done one dramatic role. He's done three. He's done three. Okay, yeah, three. There was the 9-11 one, there was Spanglish, and there was the one in our book, Punch Drunk Love. And now he doesn't even want to do comedy. He just wants a paycheck. <laughs> and who can blame him? If you're going to pay me $20 million to go sit in Maui, I will do that. I'll do five movies for Netflix if they want to yeah. pay me. <laughs> That's like saying you'll get in the ring with Mike Tyson. at the. Of course you would. What is that? You guys are ki ki killing me over here. Bang! I really thought it was Pucks to Tawny Phil for all these years. And you know, Pucks to Tawny Phil never died. It's still Pucks to Tawny Phil. He's still there, even though the lifespan of a groundhog isn't quite that. <laughs> I feel like you're you're saying Santa Claus is real for the kids listening to this. I still want to believe in Pucks to Tawny Phil. <laughs> it's like you're telling me that, you know, Shamu is able to be in all locations of SeaWorld simultaneously. <laughs> I mean, come on. just. I also used to think there was only one Concorde. I didn't know the Concorde. When you said you were flying the Concorde, you weren't on the Concorde. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that one for sure. Bang! You go on YouTube, the ending of every conceivable movie explained because we have to understand everything and dissect it. No, it's just, it's a fantasy. It's a fable. It's a metaphor. I love it when they explain movies that really are very simple. They don't need to be explained, yes. <laughs> the ending of Clue explained. Well, he did it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they all had motive. Next. <laughs> Bang! Because a phone booth, you don't really have those very much anymore, right? Yes, it was because of the movie Phone Booth. Uh, it just yes. took them all away. They they saw Colin Farrell and decided that that <laughs> just was an unsafe design. I actually blame Colin Farrell for a lot of things. So yes, I would go with that. I'm Bang! And stopped Brian Doyle Murphy, his brother, from choking. Murray, it's Murray's uh, brother. Murray's his brother. <laughs> <laughs> they have different last names, but they're brothers. You know, I really love Eddie Murray in that movie Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> If you watch The Razor's Edge, which is adapted from a book, but... It's not the skating movie, is it? With the ice no, skaters? No, that's, that's the, the cutting, cutting edge. edge. Oh, okay. No. Bing! Bing! 